Hello, and welcome back to Popular Podagogy, a podcast brought to you by the Faculty of Education. We are fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Lindsay Morecambe. Lindsay, how are you doing? Good. How about you? Good. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, So the reason that we really wanted to get you on the podcast is 2019, this past year, was UNESCO's Year of Indigenous Language. Um, So I know that you have a little bit of a focus on Indigenous language, just a little bit of background on that. Um, So what has this year meant to you? I think it's been really meaningful that Indigenous languages have been recognized as something that's important to human heritage globally. Um, There have been a lot of opportunities that have sprung from having it um, in terms of like international conferences and abilities to collaborate with other people doing similar work. At the same time, I think it's brought all of our attention to um, a lack of policy, a lack of infrastructure, and the tremendous amount of work that we need to do to ensure the survival of Indigenous languages, both in Canada and globally. So what are some of the ways that we can support Indigenous languages and, and really support Indigenous culture through, through those programs? Um, I think the most important thing that we can all do is just learn them and speak them. So we've been really lucky in Kingston, we've got a very active language community. So we've got uh, the Kingston Indigenous Languages Nest that runs programming for children and families. And then here, um, we've also got programming um, that we offer in partnership. um, That's actually held here at the Faculty of Education at Queen's University. And we invite people in to learn Anishinaabe Moan, which is also called Algonquin or Ojibwe, uh, every Tuesday night for free um, at the in the ATEP lounge. Um, and that's, I think, been a really great thing for the community, I hope. Um, so I'm really happy to be a part of that as well. Nice. And for people who are trying to learn Indigenous languages, what are some of the things that you might uh, encourage them to do other than coming to these types of events mm-hmm. and participating in, in these activities? Well, there's actually a wealth of resources for language learning and language teaching uh, so there are great books. Um, one that I would definitely recommend is the Ashkabewis Journal, which is out of Bemidji State University. Um, they have created this wealth of knowledge online. So they have uh, written texts that are all in Nishnabemun and then also in English, but they've recorded them. So you can use them as a language learning tool to hear fluent speech. Um, there are apps. Uh, Wakomakong First Nation has a great app for, for learning language. Um, they've also got a resource development cell there. Um, they're turning out great resources. Same with Chiging First Nation on their website. They've got some great things, um, some really nice videos that are really fun. Um, yeah, so there's there's no shortage of resources. I think we do need to keep doing development, but there's, there's lots to start with. But we need to make those more accessible and make them uh, more widely known so that more people can pick them up and start learning language. Nice. So you were, you talked a little bit earlier and you mentioned it briefly, but the ATEP Lounge and the ATEP mm-hmm. program here at Queen's, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what, what actually that enco- uh, encompasses? Absolutely. So the ATEP program is the Aboriginal Teacher Education Program, and it's actually been running out of the Faculty of Education since 1991. Uh, we have over 400 Indigenous graduates as well as non-Indigenous graduates from that program. So I was the coordinator of that program for the last six years, and now it's Deb St. Amont, who's also our elder in residence. And she brings a wealth of knowledge and wisdom to the program. Um, so we offer it both in community uh, right now um, on Manitoulin Island in partnership with communities there, as well as uh, here we have a campus-based iteration too, which is open to both Indigenous and non-Indigenous students, um, where we talk a lot about teaching for reconciliation. 
And what is some of the value about having that type of program for um, teachers, both in the community and in the program here at the university? Well, I think that we're at a crossroads in Canada now. Um, We're coming through a period where we're starting to realize that what has been done um, on this land to Indigenous people is genocide. And that the education system had a lot to do with that, was actually a perpetrator of genocide. And I don't think any of us who are teachers who love our students so much are comfortable with our profession um, having engaged in in genocide. Um, And so for Indigenous people, we really see the impacts of that on our communities. And for non-Indigenous people, I think that being complicit in that and, and having benefited from that in terms of access to land and access to resources is something that we need to question as we move forward. And I feel like teachers are in a really good place to do that because they have the potential to engage with children, engage with learners, and help the whole country move forward in a good way. Um, and I also feel like because of the history of our profession, it's incumbent upon us to do that. Um, at the same time, um, Indigenous people are not our genocide. Um, this is something that has happened, but but our history on this land extends for millennia. And so our cultures contain wisdom knowledges, um, ways of teaching and learning that are wise and territory connected. And they're beneficial, I think, to everybody. Um, So it benefits Indigenous learners and non-Indigenous learners. And I'm really happy that you brought up that last point as well, um, because I think that, especially at this point in time with reconciliation and and the TRC calls to action, a lot of teachers have Um, there's obviously still a lot of ways for us to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of teachers have started to actually realize and and understand the significance of what has happened um, to the extent that is even possible. I mean, there's so much that has happened. Um, But one of the things that you mentioned is the way forward and how can we continue to to move forward towards uh, an education system that is properly incorporating Indigenous knowledge and, and Indigenous languages and indigenous culture in the education system in a way that's true and authentic. So um, a lot of your research has talked about uh, decolonizing the education system and looking at a a decolonized model. So can you explain a little bit more about that for the audience? Yeah, I think that's going to vary depending on where you are. So a lot of our work focuses on on on-reserve education. Mm -hmm. And I think there, the answer really does lie in self-governance and self-determination. It's certainly time that we recognize that Indigenous communities have the capacity to run their own education systems and educate their own children, and that Indigenous cultures have all of the content that is necessary, can be taught through that lens. And so to conclude that now and say, well, if if that's the case, and it is, why is it that the federal government still has so much oversight over Indigenous education in Indigenous communities? Why is it that Indigenous education in those communities is still so woefully underfunded? Um, There's going to be an increase in funding, apparently, through the new Indigenous Languages Act, which I still need to to look into a little bit more. But it's not going to be enough to bring things up to par with funding for education off-reserve. And I think that that's really problematic. If we say, okay, we're going to fund this appropriately and then leave it to Indigenous communities to ensure that their children are are appropriately educated, as they have done for, for millennia, that is a huge step in decolonization in those contexts. And that that naturally involves education, respecting language and culture. Um, 
Off-reserve things are more complicated, mm-hmm. but still necessary because about 70% of Indigenous people actually live off-reserve in Canada. And so our children, and I include my son in that, have the right as well to access their language and culture through the education system. And that's going to necessitate, first of all, increased hiring. So we need to increase the number of Indigenous teachers that we have in provincial school classrooms. We need to increase access to things like language learning opportunities, which are increasing. So we've done some work locally with the the Limestone District School Board with respect to that. Um, We've got great liaisons in the local school boards, and we need to see more people whose job it is to help teachers decolonize their classrooms as well. Um, We're very lucky locally that we've got support in our school boards, but not every school board is that lucky. Right. Um, and so I think that those are things that, that need to be deeply considered, um, in order to meet the needs of Indigenous students and also to ensure that non-Indigenous people are aware of the fulsome history of the country in which they live. Right. Um, if, if I was a teacher, uh, in, in today's classroom and I was trying to find out more information of how I can make my class more inclusive for Indigenous students, where would you recommend that I go? Um, in every school board in Ontario, there's somebody within the school board who's tasked with overseeing Indigenous education. Sometimes it's the only portfolio that they carry, and, and that's why I say we're lucky here in both Algonquin Lakeshore Catholic District School Board and Limestone. We've got somebody in each board who it's their whole job to help teachers decolonize and indigenize their classrooms. Um, and so they would be my first point of call if I was a teacher, because they have access to all of the resources that that school board has. Um Beyond that, there are resources within universities. We get called a lot, actually, in ATAP by teachers who are looking for resources and who are looking for guidance. Um, And there are things like friendship centers. Um, There's some great resources online. There's the First Nations Métis and Inuit Education Association of Ontario. Um, But there are resources um, that are really plentiful for teachers to do that kind of work. I think it's really important, though, that teachers make sure that they're getting things from reputable sources Um, particularly Indigenous authored resources, so that they know that they're teaching authentic things. So another thing that I wanted to talk about is the Mm -hmm. fact that you have recently been named a Canada Research Chair, so congratulations on that. Miigwech. I just wanted you to speak a little bit more about what that actually means and what you'll do from that position and how uh, that works in, in regards to research for people who may not know. All right. Um, So what that means is that more of my time will be focused on research instead of um, some of the teaching and admin that I was doing previously, but I'm still going to be doing those things as well. Um, I I don't think I could give up teaching. That's that's just the best thing. Yeah. Um, And it's really important. It is. And you're playing to our audience right now, so that works out quite well, too. Fair enough. (laughs) Well, that's the thing with, with things like this, right, where we recognize that research and teaching in our field are just inextricably intertwined. And so we teach what we learn through our research in our classrooms, and our classrooms are also places where we learn and contribute to our research. So that's really lucky. Um, So back to the CRC. Um, It means that I'll be spending more time doing more um, invested research, and I'm really grateful for that because that means that I can do what I can um, even more to help revitalize languages, particularly in Anishinaabe Moan, which is my heritage language. and also contribute to uh, other areas of research like reconciliation and decolonization. Okay. Um, so I'm very, very grateful for the support that I got from the university to apply for that. Yeah, and we're very happy that you were able to get it here at Queen's. And mm-hmm. um, I know that everyone's pretty uh, honored at the fact that Queen's has taken a step towards um, supporting research in, in 
this area and, and making it so that we can um, help move towards a decolonized education system and improving um, the learning of Indigenous languages across Canada. So that, that makes it makes me really happy, at least uh, on a personal level, to have heard, heard about that. So congratulations again. Thank you. Uh, we're just going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Lindsay Morgan. Are you an occasional teacher looking to improve your job prospects? Are you an experienced teacher trying to reach the next pay scale? Are you interested in improving your overall teaching practice? Queen's Continuing Teacher Education has you covered. With easy-to-access online courses, you can log on to your course from anywhere you have access to the Internet. Courses offered by CTE range from special education to technological education to safe and accepting schools. Queen's CTE courses work with your schedule, have supportive, expert instructors that want to help you succeed. Registration is fast and easy with no commitment to pay until the Friday before the course starts. What are you waiting for? Visit coursesforteachers.ca for more information or to sign up today. That's coursesforteachers.ca. And we're back with more from Lindsay Morecambe. So, Lindsay, uh, one of the things that I I know has gone on at Queen's recently and has been going on at a couple different universities around the world for the last few years is the Matariki Network of Universities. Can you tell me a little bit more about that program and, and what we did here at Queen's recently? Absolutely. Um, that was one of the best teaching experiences of my career. So uh, we worked with the um, International Office and the Office of Indigenous Initiatives um, to contribute to the uh, Matariki Indigenous Student Mobility Program. Um, so the MISMP, as we call it, has been going on for the last four years. And it's, it, it started in um, New Zealand at the University of Otago and then went to University of Western Australia in Perth and then Dartmouth College in the United States. Uh, and then it was our turn. So we had students from all three of those universities, as well as Uppsala University in Sweden. We had um, a person who was actually... Uh, uh, an indigenous person from the Philippines, but he's doing his doctorate there. Come, uh, so we had a really great diversity of indigenous people from multiple nations, uh, from New Zealand, Australia, um, the Philippines slash Sweden, and the United States, and then Canadian students as well. Um, they were here for two weeks, and we did um, a tremendous amount of travel throughout <laughs> Eastern Ontario, and we looked at what does indigenous research mean? Um, how is it presented? How is it not like Western research? So we did very little in terms of um, sit-down lectures. Um, we engaged land-based education. We spent three days at Elbow Lake Environmental Education Center, which was, I think, probably the best part. It was a great bonding experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then we explored urban Kingston, um, some histor historical things like we did tour the prison here. Um, we talked about things like children's aid um, and the implications that that those organizations have on Indigenous people and families. Uh, we traveled to the Petroglyphs, uh, Petroglyphs Provincial Park, Curve Lake First Nation, Tyendinaga, hosted us on numerous occasions. We're really grateful to have gotten welcomed in by the um, the Longhouse community in Tyendinaga. Um, so, yeah, it was a huge initiative. Um, and the three areas, um, us, international and uh, indigenous, indigenous initiatives, worked really well together, I think. So I'm, I'm really proud of it. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing mm -hmm. program. And, and yeah. It's really quite incredible. And one of the things that really struck me, and, and we talked about this a little bit on the break, but um, when you have 
indigenous education, you're often thinking localized or provincial or national. You, you don't really get to think about international perspectives. But there are indigenous people that are all around the world, and they've all had um, different, different but also similar experiences. And so what were some of the things that you learned from these other uh, groups of individuals that were coming from different places all around uh, the world and how they compared to the Canadian experience of in- indigenous people? Well, I think it was really interesting to compare um, what impacts settler colonialism particularly have had on Indigenous people. And we really see parallels because um, all four countries of New Zealand, Australia, the United States and Canada were colonized by the British. And they were actually comparing notes um, through that colonial process. And so similar things were enacted upon Indigenous people in all four countries. So it was very interesting to compare how colonization had been enacted in each um, settler colonial state, and also what Indigenous people were doing to decolonize and indigenize within their communities and to reclaim their land. At the same time, I was really glad that we had a student as well from the Philippines, where it's not so much a settler colonial state. So huge impacts, multiple colonizations, but um, it the the outcome is not the same as it has been in those countries um, where where settlers have remained. So I think we learned a great deal about how um, colonization looks in a non-settler context. Um, So I was very, very grateful to have that. Um, I think that we also had the unique opportunity to create a deeply indigenized space for all of the students. They're all at universities, including Queens, where the overwhelming population is non-indigenous. And so for a lot of them... It was the first time that they had found themselves outside of their own community in an educational space that was purely Indigenous. We only had, I think, one student participant who was not an Indigenous person. She was very well educated in in the subject. So it was just a heavily Indigenous space where we could all just really be ourselves. Um, There's something to be said for being surrounded by other people who are seeking knowledge at post-secondary level, but who also understand the world from an Indigenous perspective. And you didn't have to explain yourself and you could just talk. And I think that the students really appreciated that. Um, by the end of the, the two weeks, we had really bonded as a community. Yeah. Um, so that was a really beautiful thing to watch. And the program continues as well. So it's it's not over at the end of this two weeks. It continues on and, and will continue to uh, move forward at another university next year, correct? Um, probably not this coming year. Uh, right now we're looking at restructuring it because it's been so successful But we also feel that it has untapped potential, both to contribute to research and and, um, authentically Indigenous research on a global stage, but also to contribute to education within our respective institutions. So for this year, we're looking at um, doing some exploration with our um, Matariki network of university partners to see what um, that might look like and how we can enrich it and make sure that it's something that's sustainable and something that really contributes to the intellectual lives of the participants. Oh, that's awesome. I hope that it continues to uh, not only make it so that it's purposeful for the people that are involved in the network and, and gathering these experiences, but that you can share that with with others as well so that more people can learn and grow from that experience. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to move to a little bit more difficult of a topic now. Um, and, you know, We've talked today a lot about all of the amazing things that are happening and the really good things that are happening at Queen's as well. Um, but there have been some troubling things that have happened in the last little while. Um, so particularly uh, with with some 
students at Queens and some messages that had been sent to um, a couple of different communities at Queens. So um, I just wanted to see uh, what what your thoughts were on that and if, if you wanted to share those today. Yeah. Um, so what happened was that and one of our residences in a common area in a floor occupied by primarily Indigenous students and members of the LGBTQ community, um, <clears throat> a really hateful note was left, a violent hateful note. Um, I think we were all taken aback. I certainly was. I, I feel like I'm very lucky to be in a position where I can help other Indigenous people really flourish. I, I came to university not understanding who I was as an Indigenous person, and I learned that through um, my time at First Nations University. So I understand what great potential we have to help people here. And I was really saddened because I've been spending the last six years telling my students, like, if you're a member of the LGBTQ2 plus community, you can be yourself here. Right. You can use your pronouns in my class. You can be safe. You can be open. And telling my um, Indigenous students that, that it was a welcoming place for them my indigenous white coded students that they could be openly indigenous here. And then that happened. And I was angry and afraid. I've never been afraid to come to work before. Mm -hmm. And I was afraid to come to work that day. Yeah. Um, and like actually physically afraid, like that it wasn't, it wasn't a theoretical kind of fear. It was a very real, very violent physical fear. Mm -hmm. And I think we all felt that way. And that, that wasn't something I thought would be a part of my experience in this institution, but it was. Um, the university responded. I think that the most um, impactful response that we saw was when a thousand people gathered and, and marched through the streets of main campus mm -hmm. to show that, that that does not reflect us as a community, but it certainly is now we are aware present in our community. I think that that's something that we're going to see as um, marginalized communities increasingly demand rights and recognition and that's true for both the lgbtq2 plus community and the indigenous community that for a long time a lot of us have had to keep our identities secret regardless of which of those communities we belong to um or face persecution and now as we demand those rights the people who have been in power some are going to react very viscerally to that um I wish that wasn't the reality, and I wish I could tell my students that they weren't going to see it, but they are. And so that's where we also need to decide as not just a university community, but a community at large, how are we going to respond to that? And how are we going to ensure that that kind of backlash does not halt us from demanding equality and demanding rights? And that is incumbent upon all of us to keep questioning and to keep doing exactly what we're doing. I will not be afraid to come to work, and I hope that my colleagues who belong to those communities and to other racialized and marginalized communities within Queens will not be afraid to continue demanding to be seen. Mm -hmm. um, but it did indicate to us that we still have a lot of work to do, right? We've made great progress. There are things that are present in the education of young people today that I could not have dreamt of when I was 20 and, and, and at university, but certainly we have a lot of work to do and we can't get too comfortable. Yeah. And, and, I mean, I think you summed that up quite well, and, and thank you for sharing your opinion on that. And I, I, I don't feel that I can have much more to add other than the fact that it was really sad that day yeah. um, when when I found out the news about that. And, and um, I know that a lot of the people that I worked with 
and and just talking about it felt also very sad but it is you're right an eye-opening experience that that sentiment and that feeling even though you see all the progress and you see teachers like yourself who are doing everything they can to make it so that students feel welcome and we're putting in in place institutional policies to make students feel welcome and we have things like the response that you talked about it's still important for us to remember that that doesn't mean that these other things don't exist and so um i i really am thankful for all the things that you're doing and thankful for the things that are are moving that forward but you're right it's important that we continue to think about those things because we're not done no, and I think that's where continued education comes in as well, right? That I'm I'm not the only one in the building. Certainly, there's a lot of us who do social justice education. And doing that kind of work and doing um, greater education for equality in all of our courses across this campus, I think that that indicates to us how important that is. Because if we allow ourselves to become complicit and allow ourselves to continue um promoting a status quo where that sort of thought is able to perpetuate, then we're still going to have those kinds of issues. So we need to think about how we're going to decolonize our campus as a whole and how we're going to educate all of our students to ensure that we are producing not just people who are fit for a job market, but people who are fit to develop the future that we all want to see. Yeah. And I'm going to take that hopeful note at the end and, and, move that as the message moving forward is that we want to find the world that we want to see. Um, And on a lighter note, we're going to move now to our last segment of the podcast, which Mm -hmm. is usually our classroom confession segment. Um, And I think that you have a great story today that reminds people of what the power of education actually is, uh, because it's not just about um, going out there and being perfect and doing everything you can. It's about, you know, being willing to put yourself out there. Maybe you make a mistake from time or two, but it, it'll be uh, good in the long run. So would you mind sharing that story? Yeah. So this is when I first started teaching, which was ages and ages ago, almost 20 years ago, actually. Um, I was teaching at First Nations University. So I was teaching linguistics. Mm-hmm. And um, one of our goals there was to try and indigenize our content as much as possible. So I had used an example from uh, Cree, which is an indigenous language from the territory where I was working. Um, and I thought that I was giving the example of my coat, which is a noun in Cree that's always possessed. Yeah. So I was talking about inalienable possession, giving this example like over and over again, like probably 20 times in the course of my <laughs> one hour lecture. And afterwards, a student came up to me who was a fluent Cree speaker. And he said, so when you say that word, you really need to lengthen the A. I'm like, okay. And he had me say it over and over and over again. I'm actually not going to say it here just in case. <laughs> um, and I said, like, why? What, what was I doing? He's like, well, the word you were saying sounded a little bit more like masculine genitalia than coat. So just so you know, that's what you, like you sat there the whole class while I was saying that over and over. And I, I was grateful that you had the grace to, yeah. to like come and teach it to me. And I, and that's the thing, right? Like I learned that day. Um, he didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't dragged out into the street. Yeah. He was very, very gracious about it. And I was super grateful for that, but it was a learning experience. And I should have checked. I should have gone to one of my, I, I had numerous fluent friends mm-hmm. and I could have asked and I really probably should have done that. But at the same time, I had taken a risk and I learned from that risk. So I think that that was my takeaway was that 
it's okay to take risks and it's okay to make mistakes in the classroom, especially when you're an early years teacher, everything gets so much easier the longer you go. Right. Um, so yeah. And, and really just like anyone, that's how you, you learn and grow as an educator, as a student, anything. So you, you put yourself out there and gave it a shot and now, you know, definitively that you need to elongate the A. I do. So now we're good. (laughs) And it's, it's just like Miss Frizzle, right? Take chances, make mistakes, get messy. And it's true for teaching and language learning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can end it any better than Miss Frizzle. So, uh, <laughs> Lindsay, thank you for coming on today. That does it for another episode of Popular Podagogy. Uh, if you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Or you can see us on the Faculty of Education and CFRC websites. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.